The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight. So I mentioned last week for those who weren't here that we're in a transition. It's really two Buddhist studies courses we're doing now, but they relate and work together and it also works in my schedule just to do it as one 11-week class. So we're transitioning from mindfulness of mind to the mindfulness of mental qualities. So this is the teachings on mindfulness where the Buddha is encouraging us to use these maps. But of course, it's not about memorizing a map, although it, it helps to memorize these maps. But it's about using the maps to open to the way it is. In fact, all four of these, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of the mind, and now the fourth, mindfulness of these maps. Usually it's def- the word is mindfulness of dhammas, but here dhammas is a word pointing to the mental qualities, and particularly looking at the mental qualities in terms of these maps, like the five hindrances, and next week, the seven factors of awakening. So basically those qualities of mind that hinder the stability and clarity of the mind and those qualities of mind that support the stability and clarity of the mind, right? So when we're sitting, you might find it really powerful to have that lens, that map. So as we're there being intimate with the body, being intimate to some degree with the breath moving in the body, And then, uh, you know, so much of our distractedness, getting caught up in thought, is because we, we haven't created an appropriate incentive for the mind to stay present. So we need it. It's really useful to bring a theme to mind. Like if this is the real trap or shadow of what we sometimes call open attention practice or uh, choiceless awareness, sometimes people call it, where we're not y- directing the attention to a particular anchor, like feeling the body, feeling the breath moving in the body. And it's, it's a very useful way to practice. Everyone should do some of that practice. When I'm, you know, just by default, when I'm giving guided meditation instructions, most of the time, like in the weekly practice groups, I'll always end with that style of practice. Maybe it's just two minutes or maybe it's five minutes. So usually at the beginning of the set, I'll give a more like an anchor so that people have something that to direct their attention to, but then using an open attention practice. But the shadow of that open attention, choiceless awareness practice is we're not really doing anything. The mind isn't really learning much. So... One thing to add, if you like more open attention practice, is just to bring some of the themes that we're going to be studying in the next four weeks before we end at the end of this month, or end of March. So we'll be looking at the five hindrances as a map, the seven factors of awakening, the six sense gates, the five aggregates, the basic simple ways of kind of easily recognizing that there's a body and a mind here. So the six sense gates and the five aggregates are just a more sophisticated way of recognizing, ah, there's a mind and body here. 
That's really what it is. So don't think of it as more complicated than that. So hindrances, seven factors of awakening, the six sense gates and the five aggregates, and then the four noble truths. And again, four noble truths just means that as we're sitting, aware of the body, aware of the breath moving in the body, we're interested in suffering and the end of suffering, right? as an immediate, actual happening. It's not this complicated philosophical construct that we have to keep in mind. The whole point of these maps is to point like a way in to what's happening in the moment, whether it's the hindrances or the wholesome qualities, the seven factors of awakening that are there, or the five aggregates or the six sense gates. They're just clever ways of encouraging the mind, inspiring the mind to be interested in dhamma, dharma, the way it is. That's all. So don't make it more complicated than that. Ways in. And then because we have that theme, it's like the mind is going to remember that, oh yeah, I'm using this theme to be intimate, to see, to connect what I would otherwise be not connecting with or not seeing, not having insight into. Some of you know that even after the Buddha's awakening, you know, in the discourses, there were many examples, more than a few, where the Buddha would say, Mara, I see you. Mara, this Buddha personifying the disturbances that would arise in his experience. So the transformation isn't about, uh, when we talk about uprooting the defilements or removing the hindrances, and the hindrances do fall far into the periphery or in, you know, they're suppressed at times. But they come back and we don't have to make it a problem. Remember the whole thrust of the practice is the heart, the sensitive heart, not having a problem with what it's sensitive to. So how can we have this tremendously sensitive, more and more, right, as we practice. The heart doesn't get better armored. The armor comes off. That's the direction of practice. So how can we have this very sensitive heart where we're seeing and feeling, intuiting, being touched, literally the heart being touched? How can that be without it being a problem? So it's not about emotion disappearing. It's about emotion arising but not being misunderstood. Mara arising. And the Buddha says, Mara, I see you. And I don't know what the word is, but they often, often in those passages where the Buddha is seeing Mara, he says, he uses the, the word friend, friend, I see you. <laughs> Which is useful, right? I see you. And, uh, what um, liberates the mind, our mind, from the hindrances is the clear seeing, not having to have a conditioned mind that's conditioned differently. And what a relief that is. You know, as we see the more and more the roots of fear and the roots of greed and lust, 
you know, think about how much suffering and how much destructiveness has happened because human beings have been in denial of like things like lust. You know, thinking it's bad. Thinking that desire is bad or thinking that anger is bad. So it gets suppressed, which of course, or repressed, and it just leaks in somewhere or sneaks in somewhere else. So instead of creating all these shadows, <coughs> we're opening the windows and doors. <coughs> and this is important for us to reflect on in terms of looking at the wholesome, the seven factors of awakening, and the unwholesome, the hindrances tonight of sense desire, wanting, aversion, ill will, too little energy, sleepiness, or sloth, or torpor, too much energy, restlessness, worry, and doubt. <clears throat> so, you, like I've often said, you could probably think of other ways to organize uh, qualities of mind that hinder the stability of awareness, disturb the clarity of awareness. But this is a good enough way to divide up or to organize the way our mind, the awareness, the quality, uh, clarity rather, of awareness gets disturbed, right? So let's use this list so that we can more quickly befriend these qualities when they come up. Oh, because when they're not seen, the Buddha describes it, some of you know this, it's really, I find a graphic simile, um, I guess it's related to the fig tree, but these, uh, these vines and the birds eat the fruit of these vines and then they uh, poop on big trees, you can imagine in the tropics, and then plants start to grow right there on the branch. And there are, I guess, enough moisture and nutrients right there in the bark of that big tree. They start to grow and they drop down their roots and the plant slowly takes over the trunk and the branches of the tree. And so these big, massive trees eventually get completely encircled, you know, obviously over decades probably, with these vines. So you can't even, there's no part of the tree left exposed because it's all been encircled. And that's the image, that's the simile the Buddha used to describe the (coughs) effects of these hindrances. And we know this. I mean, we see, we should at least now, because we're being reminded at least, now we should be interested. Well, is this really true? So when ill will, a little pinprick of ill will gets established in our mind, does it have this tendency, this spreading and encircling tendency in my mind? Is that its nature? Once it has an in, the mind, see the in doesn't mean that it's arisen, the ill will or aversion has arisen. The in is the misperception of it. The problem isn't that ill will gets triggered, The problem begins when the mind misperceives it. 
So instead of seeing it in terms of the three characteristics, this is something that comes and goes lawfully according to causes and conditions. It's rather ephemeral. It's a changing process. It's not self. When there's ever any identification, it hurts. So that's seeing it in terms of wisdom, the three characteristics. So when we don't see that it's just come, arisen, lawfully due to causes and conditions. And as soon as those supporting causes aren't there, it will go away on its own. Right? When's the last time a lot of lust or desire arose in your mind? And he said, no problem, because if I stop feeding it, it's just going to go away. I don't have to gratify the desire. I don't have to be afraid of the desire because it will go away on its own. We don't do that. You know, we either think we have to do that thing, get that thing in order for it to go, the pain of the desire to go away, or that we have to scold ourselves, like you shouldn't want that, and and somehow repress, deny it, turn it into something bad. You know, that we're bad for wanting that. I can't believe you want that. How dare you, right? Because conditioning is just conditioning. These tendencies to want or fear what we want and fear, it's not personal. You know, whatever your perversion is, whatever it might be, or whatever your secret desire might be, you know, you want, you really want a Hummer. Something like, something you would never admit at a place like Hummer Ground. Or whatever it is. We don't need to be ashamed because that means we're misperceiving the hindrance when it arises. We're not seeing that it's a conditional arising, arising lawfully due to causes and conditions, that it will pass, that it's not self, it's nature. And that whenever there is misperception and it's seen as me or mine, then immediately it has weight. And see, then that's, that's the, when it has a hold on the mind because the weight then seemingly confirms that it's personal. Like, why is it weightful if it isn't personal? So when I, you know, when there is desire and I'm identified, I, I, it feels, it seems personal to me that I want that. I'll be happy if I have that. Then it has some weight. So then it's like, well, maybe I really do need this to be happy because that's how it feels, right? Same with fear or aversion or any of the hindrances. The, it, the, the dukkha itself of any of these five hindrances, the tightness in the heart itself is the compelling evidence that it's personal, right? Because dukkha, the tightness in our heart, it seems so personal. That's why the Buddha says that it's the not understanding suffering, dukkha, it's the not understanding what that weightful squeeze of the heart is that is actually the cause for suffering. It's not understanding it that we suffer. So we want to use that relatively graphic 
image of you know our life getting i mean this is this is really the um where dharma and uh, recovery from addiction um have a lot to say because it's a graphic image of the addictive process where it always seems to make sense to watch a little bit more tv or to indulge a little bit more in this or in that, or to like indulge in fear and self-righteousness. Because it, it squeezes the heart, what makes it seem like we should go there again. It squeezes the heart so we should go there again. So one... And it re- I think it relates to the uh, way I, I did the guided meditation tonight. One thing you can explore as you look at these uh, five hindrances now, this week, and forever is to get interested in the experience of ease so that when you're, you know, like when you feel the desire to go eat more or, you know, like, I mean, just for me, eating is one, like when I uh, catch desire, it often has to do with wanting some direct sense pleasure around, usually involving food and because uh, there's just not that much else available. And then for aversion or fear, more self-righteous kind of aversiveness, it's like going to the news, right? To sort of uh, see something to kind of... It's like a, we want an experience that matches the dukkha that we're feeling in the heart. Whether the dukkha is the squeeze of wanting something or the squeeze of you idiots or you know whatever the aversive self-righteousness is. So one thing you might explore is don't say to yourself, no, you can't eat, you bad boy, or you can't look at the news. You've already read the news too many times today. I'm not going to let you. Is see it more as a teacher and just say, well, let's, let's see what happens. I'll lie down. I'll do a deep relaxation or just rest for a few moments and I'll see if I can, for just a few minutes, reconnect with an authentic experience of ease and relaxation. So I'm challenging the squeeze in the heart and just seeing if there can instead be ease. Right? And then and then it's really curious, like the desire to, you know, stew with the news or to have a sense treat, like what happens to that those that aversive desire or that sense desire, what happens to it when the heart re-remembers the experience of ease, relaxation, or just a basic pleasantness? Because we, what we're learning is the sort of pain of the hindrance, which is dukkha, is the proximate cause for it. And then, well, how does it enter in? Well, there's some sense contact which triggers, you know, we see something, like we remember there's something in the fridge 
or we remember, you know, it's been an hour since I've looked at the news. Something might have happened. You know, some politician may have said something stupid. <laughs> really, I mean, isn't that almost the way it is? It's like, what stupid thing has somebody said, you know, since the last time I've checked? I mean, it's really heartbreaking when we're, when we, I, I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but when I actually am honest about how I am sometimes, it really breaks my heart. Like, oh, and I'm probably, you know, average, maybe slightly better than average in terms of use of these things. So this is really important in terms of your meditation practice too. Like, don't be ashamed or don't feel it's not useful to however you can cultivate a sense of space, a sense of ease, a sense of calm. Because the study of the hindrances will go much better because it's in contrast to that relative sense of ease that we can really see the underlying nature that they come and go lawfully, not self, and there's always suffering when the mind misunderstands it. And every time we see that about a hindrance, it gets weaker. One of the things I sent out um, in the email last night, I don't know if people got it, hopefully you did, but uh, Andy Olansky put a, a very nice chart together. <coughs> it's one of, it was printed in the Insight Meditation Journal 10 years ago. That's a really nice journal, by the way. Uh, Insight Journal, it's called. And uh, now it's just online. They don't print it. And you can just sign up for it at the uh, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, which is on the same campus of, as IMS in Massachusetts. And it comes out every full moon. And there's always at least one good ar- article um, but anyway, from this uh, chart, Andy has organized all of the important discourses around the hindrances. So you might even want to print this up. It's really nice. And it has some of the images the Buddha uses, like for, um, he uses that pool of water, and greed or wanting is like that water, having dye in it so you can't see clearly. Or if you're angry, it's like it's bubbling, or if you're sleepy, it's like there's a lot of algae, and restlessness is the wind whipping it up, and doubt is muddy water. And then there are five other similes that are used. Wanting, having the mind encircled by greediness, it's like being in debt. And ill will is like being sick. And sloth and torpor or sleepiness is like being imprisoned. And restlessness is being enslaved. And doubt is being in a dangerous feeling like you're in a dangerous place. And then the important thing here that I think is worth reading through are the last two columns where it's basically talking about the proximate causes for each of the hindrances and how we weaken them. So there's this image of feeding and starving or feeding and weakening the hindrances And the same thing with the 
wholesome qualities, the seven factors of awakening, there are ways we can feed calm or tranquility or feed joy in the mind. One of the most easy ways to remember like how to act like you want more joy in your life, it's not as simple as making the aspiration to be a more joyful person or even as some systems, more new age systems, talk about like um, setting the intention. But if you really want more joy or any of these seven factors, more interest, more energy, more rapture or joy, more tranquility, more concentration, more equanimity, more mindfulness, recognize it. Even if it's not a very strong quality in your mind, but have enough faith, enough confidence that it's there, even if it's just in a very seed-like form, and recognize or even if it's just there as a potential, just having the sense that the seed or the potential for joy is here in the mind, in the heart. Like, and to actually follow, that inten- follow through with that intention to sort of listen for it or look for it or feel for it. I guarantee if you do that regularly with any of the seven factors, they will come alive big time in your life. But that means you can't, you can't take the bait of being doubtful. Like when you don't immediately see it in a clear way or find it or it doesn't look like what you think it should look like and then you give up, you can't do that, right? You have to sustain that these potentials, the potential for joy, for calm, for concentration for equanimity, for interest, for energy, for mindfulness. These seven factors are there. The potentials are there. They're there at least as a seed. They can be recognized. As soon as they're recognized and appreciated for what they actually are, that is feeding it. It will get stronger and stronger and stronger. So uh, next week we'll have small groups and we'll talk both about the hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. And it would be useful for folks to have some stories about um, learning to include the hindrance. You know, Mara, I see you. Maybe even add, and you belong here now. You're a conditional, a lawful arising. You are not a mistake. I mean, that's, that's a powerful thing to say. You're not a mistake. We could say the same thing about blizzards and about irritating people at work and about knee pain and head colds. And I mean, imagine if we had cultivated this attitude of including you belong. I'm not going to think that my life begins when you go away that inside practice, that liberation depends on you going away because liberation is with you here. Like what does freedom look like when I have knee pain and aversion to it or when I am afraid or I am wanting something to happen in my life? What does freedom look like? 
What is lightness of heart? What is love? How can love show up when it's like this? Love being that capacity to connect. So just a short version of um, the cultivation and abandoning of these qualities. This is a footnote um, from, I think, a Bhikkhu Bodhi's um, um, uh, volume on the Middle Link Discourses. And he's talking about the five hindrances. He says, they are the main inner impediments to the, ve- to the development of concentration and insight. Sensual desire, sense desire, arises through attending unwisely to sensually attractive object, to a sensually attractive object, and is abandoned by meditation on, he says, foul object. But so when there's something that we like has arisen, then we have to realize that there's a real range to how I'm going to open to this experience. And if I, like whatever it is in your fridge, like just it's a safe thing to talk about when we're talking about desire. We won't be embarrassed talking about food. I finished up the ice cream this afternoon. <laughs> it's all gone. <laughs> Wynn probably didn't even know it was there. So when we bring something to mind we desire, then when it comes to mind, there, it's not like one thing, whatever that is. It's like we can see that in different ways. So we can look at the ice cream in terms of its sweetness or its smoothness or its whatever way my mind is in the habit of decorating that idea of ice cream. Or I can see it in another way. When we, in Buddha, in, in uh, Pali, it's a, a subha quality, but it often makes it sound very uh, aversive or negative. But it just means we're not focusing on what it is that's entrancing or attractive to us. We're just looking at the qualities that are not attractive. That doesn't mean they're bad. Right? Like I could pay attention to how I feel when I eat too much ice cream. Or I can pay attention, like I can bring to mind how my pants feel around my waist when I eat more than I need to eat, you know? And then how, how much I don't like shopping for new pants when I've got a lot of perfectly good pants that are tight. <laughs> Right, all of those things change the relationship, and they're all true, right? Or just how it doesn't last very long, like just the impermanence of having ice cream. So even I'm not trying to deny the pleasantness of it, but I'm just remembering that it lasts for about four or five minutes, right? And then it's done. So what do we pay attention to? And it's not about uh, hating or being tight. It's about being honest and awake. Like we're just not seeing this. We're seeing the whole package. And what we bring to mind is a pragmatic choice. It's like 
it matters what we bring to mind. So it's just that we can't say, well, of course I'm entranced with this peace, but as a responsible human being, a human being responsible for suffering and the end of suffering, I'm going to take responsibility in my experiences for what I let attention tune into. It's like when I am reading the news, karmically I'm responsible for what I pay attention to, what I feed when I'm reading the news. What am I feeding when I'm reading the news? Because that's the kind of heart or mind I'm setting in motion. And is that the heart or mind that I want to live through, have this life live, be lived through? So are we focusing on the attractive or the neutral, impermanent, not-so-attractive aspects of an experience? That's the question when the mind is about to fall in, you know, get encircled, get caught up, in craving and wanting. And then ill will arises through attending unwisely to an unattractive object and is abandoned by developing loving kindness. Right? So when I'm looking at the news, you know, and I'm scanning through all the many headlines, looking for that trigger, you know, where something provokes aversion, like, oh, you know, <laughs> it's that sound we make when we're disgusted or we're, you know. But we're also delighted that that, you know, that whatever that view, that there's stupidity out there is confirmed in our mind. Oh yeah, I knew it. There it is again. And so, <clears throat> are we going to choose to feed that, like, keep throwing into the fire another experience of connecting with a repulsive, unwholesome, or not unwholesome, but unattractive thing, right? Or what happens when we, you know, the proverbial cat video, or last night it was two polar bears meeting for the first time. Maybe some of you saw another viral, I, I forget, I think it was in Australia, two polar bears meeting for the first time. At a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> Romping in there. Well, actually, it was in, I think it's Australia. They had, they had a, like it was like a 10 acre place. It, they had a, I mean, for cap, animals in captivity, it was a pretty nice scene. But anyway, my, the, the effect of my heart was different. You know, like what we let in. What are we going to pay attention to? Right? I could go pet my cat. I don't need to watch a viral uh, video. So ill will arises through attending unwisely, unwisely to an unattractive object and is abandoned by developing loving kindness. So we can just see when we're bringing loving kind, when we're feeding the mind something that's going to trigger loving kindness, what happens to that self-righteous, that part of the mind that's addictive, that's getting encircled by aversion. Doesn't doesn't really hold up. So you can imagine now for uh, sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor arises by submitting 
to boredom and laziness. So think about times when you, when the mind gets encircled by dullness and sleepiness. I really have learned over the years to recognize how the mind likes to indulge in the heaviness of sleepiness. It really, it's like a warm blanket. And for those of you who've meditated for a long time, this is a real trap because there is a kind of not-so-wholesome tranquility that's basically sloth and torpor um, that can predominate a lot of the meditation time. You sit down and after a few minutes, there it is, a sort of warm, lush, gushy, soft, fuzzy place that's like snuggling up on your favorite couch with your favorite blanket and your favorite four-legged animal there in your chest or in your belly for a little Saturday afternoon nap. And uh, the catch is to see the mind indulging in it. Right? It, indul- it, it What is it paying? It, this is the question. What is the mind paying attention to? So when you're sleepy, you're sitting and you're sleepy, notice how much the attention wants to go to the heaviness itself. It's like a magnet. It's really hard to have the attention go somewhere else, like to energy, just the experience of energy in the mind and body. It doesn't want to notice that. It wants to notice that heavy, sleepy feeling. And it masquerades as like, well, no, I'm paying attention. This is the predominant thing. I should be looking at it, but it's going to take us more and more into that state of dullness, right? So sloth and torpor arises by submitting to boredom and laziness. I've seen this with different words translated as, you know, not boredom and laziness, but that kind of luscious heaviness, like, oh, nothing's happening. It's totally okay for me to shut down. That's part of that, like, there's nothing happening here. There's nothing happening here. Nothing I have to pay attention to here. And is abandoned by arousing energy, like being interested in energy. There's always energy, right? There's always energy. So where is it? What is its manifestation in this body and mind right now? But it's like, in the same way when you're really sleepy, you don't want to look at light. You know, you want, please, honey, shut that light off. (laughs) That's like... But so it's the same thing internally in the body and mind, getting interested in the equivalent of light, the feeling of energy. So in a way, it's like what you don't want to do. All of these are what the mind, when it's under the influence of greed, you know, you don't want to look at the impermanent nature of the thing you like. Or when you're under the influence, the encircling influence of aversion, you don't want to bring to mind loving kindness sloth and torpor, you don't want to pay attention to energy. And then restlessness and remorse arises through unwisely reflecting on disturbing thoughts, right? Like, I got to think about this again. Oh yeah, it is disturbing. Let me think again. Oh yeah, it is disturbing. And it just keeps feeding itself as opposed to abandoning by wisely reflecting on tranquility. Like what, what here and now feels settled? 
here and now feels settled. Like if there's something, um, <clears throat> we like if we have an interaction that we didn't feel so skillful in, and then we're out of it now, and there's just like, oh, I did that. And it's fine to think it through, but maybe you're, you just find that you're spinning. You're not, it's not productive. So that might be the time to sort of absorb into something with some stability. Wash the, the dishes, or if you're meditating, you know, just feel the sits bones making contact with the bench or the cushion or chair. And it's like, this is a safe abode for my attention right now. Going back to that problem, I'm just going to get pushed around. So I, th- I may have to go back there. Maybe the best thing in the world to go back there, but not now. Right now, I'm going to prove to the mind I don't have to go there by being here, doing this thing. So it's good. We all, all need a handful of things we can absorb into. I'll go feed the birds, you know, put bird seed. I'll pet my cat. You know, I'll wash dishes. I'll take care of the plants in the house. You know, I have these things that I like well enough doing, and I can absorb into it, and I can have some tranquility. Right? And therefore, put down that cycle of restlessness where the mind goes to the content that disturbs the mind, and the disturbance makes the mind compelled to go back to the content that disturbs the mind. All of these hindrances, that encircling quality, you want to recognize as a feedback loop. It's very lawful, very predictable. Only though when we step outside and see it, you know, when we're in it, we don't really see it. But in hindsight or when we can step out in a moment, then we see, oh yeah, that that was that feedback loop. And it's just perfectly lawful. And then the last is doubt. Doubt arises through unwisely reflecting on dubious matters, things that are uncertain, things where we don't know, right? But we think we should know. That's the thing. The mind's not content in the not knowing and is abandoned by study and investigation and inquiry, but not study, investigation, and inquiry in an abstract or theoretical sense, but just connecting, right? Because the doubt is a cognitive process. We're thinking, trying to get some ground through thinking. Thinking will never give the mind the hard ground because it's it's like the conception will never match, will never give certainty. But the present moment, things as they actually are, it provides an antidote to doubt. And this is so amazing. I mean, I really, just having been somebody with a lot of doubt conditioned in the mind over the, especially in the early years, still though, to some degree. Um, but it's now, even in really sticky, difficult stuff comes up and I um, have a real sense of not knowing, not knowing how something's going to unfold, not knowing how to move forward with something. It's like, I, not so different than what I was saying about restlessness, but just this capacity 
It's like, I really trust my present moment experience as a way to extinguish the suffering of doubt. It's so available. And I think because in the past I have suffered so much from doubt that I'm so appreciative of just being able to come into the experience of the body, just come into the ordinary reality of the present moment. And as an antidote for feeling something has to be resolved, that it can remain unresolved because I can do this. I can be real, I can be open, I can be connected here. This is real. This is my ground. Not how should I do this, how should we come and go and do this thing or how should I handle the situation with this particular person or, you know, whatever the uncertain, doubtful thing is. So the two things I sent out yesterday, one is this chart, which is just a quick and easy two-page summary, and the other is quite substantial, and it includes a lot of the discourses um, from a well-known Western monk who went to Sri Lanka and has uh, done a lot of translation. So if you want to dig in, you can. And there's a lot more at the website, and I also linked to that our webpage on the hindrances, including talks. And of course, there are many good talks on the hindrances at uh, dharmacy.org. Joseph Goldstein often has a very good talk. He gives most of the three-month retreats. I'm sure he did this last retreat as well in the fall on the five hindrances, so you can check that out too. But we have a little bit of time before we end. It'd be nice to hear from maybe one or two people, and then we're going to save some time. Rob is going to uh, give a little Donna talk. So maybe time for one or two comments before we turn it over to Rob. Yeah, Helen. And Gabe has the mic. Edgy, and my body felt not good at all. And of course, I didn't like it. And uh, I was kind of fighting with it for about a half hour. And I even heard the thought, there's something wrong with you, meaning mentally. Words came in my mind. Um, Can this be okay? Can I just feel this? And I just felt it. And I just popped right out of it. It was, I mean, that, I don't, not saying it will be that easy every time, but what I did. Yeah. And it's a shadow in practice, this idea, because it can sound that way, some of the discourses about becoming sort of this great, powerful, mindful person. But what we're mindful of, mindfulness does have this sort of, can develop into this real power. But what we're actually awake to is something that's very sensitive. But we don't, we're not confused about that vulnerability or that sensitivity. Thanks, Helen. Maybe time for one more comment. Yeah, El, you want to pass it back? Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking um, the things that you're saying is that it's normal to have bad times, adversity. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just how things are. And and we often react that way with being anxious and 
deep rest, and perhaps that's not the best way. A better way might be to live in the present moment, as you said. So is is that basically what you're saying then? Yeah, the present moment, being in the present moment, creates the possibility of the mind seeing that disturbance for what it is. If we're not, if the mind isn't awake in the present moment, there's no chance of seeing the desire is just desire or the aversion is just aversion. And that there's this option of being open, like desiring, wanting, or fearing is just that experience. And so then it doesn't have to get ahead of steam doesn't get ahead of steam, doesn't become that entangling quality in the mind because we interrupt it by recognizing it is just this moment of wanting. It is just this moment of being afraid. And we're not afraid to feel that, right? Because sometimes it doesn't feel good, but that's okay that it doesn't feel good. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.